Okay, Liz, here's some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, multiple systems, delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs, you cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems, and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hollywood. NetSuite.com slash Hollywood. NetSuite.com slash Hollywood. The following podcast contains explicit language. Whoa, we've gotten a lot of emails. I know. Where's the one about mansplaining? I want to talk about mansplaining. Hi, and welcome to Happier in Hollywood, the podcast about how to be happier, healthier, saner, more creative, more successful, and more productive in a backbiting, superficial, chaotic, unpredictable, fundamentally insane world. I'm Liz Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in Los Angeles. And with me is my high school friend and writing partner of 17 years, Sarah. That's me, Sarah Fain, also a TV writer and producer living in Los Angeles. Happier in Hollywood is all about how to survive and thrive no matter where you are or what you do. Today's episode is all about you guys. We are answering listener questions. (laughs) Yay! You guys have been sending amazing questions ever since we first launched. So today we want to take the time to answer as many as we can. So Sarah, let's start. Yes, let's dive in. All right. So just a heads up, we are going to answer. We got a lot of questions about moving to L.A., becoming TV writers. We are going to get into that a little bit later. But we thought we'd start with another question we get a lot. This one was from Jonah Lisa Dyer about something we've mentioned many times on the podcast. Um, Jonah Lisa wrote, I'm really interested in the treadmill desks you use. Do you have the same one or each like something different? Did you do exhaustive research so I don't have to? I love the idea of this, but not sure about loving the application and it's an investment. Okay, Jonah Lisa, our treadmill desks are Lifespan TR-1200s, and they're available on Amazon now. I don't think they were when we got them. No, uh-uh. And you have to, this is very important, get the white glove treatment when you order them so that they'll put them together for you because you don't want to have like two tons of steel just dropped on your doorstep. <laughs> exactly. And we did not do exhaustive research. Um, Gretchen may have done exhaustive yeah. research. We don't know. But Gretchen actually got mine. Um, she picked it out first, and then Sarah got the same one. And it, she got the one uh, Jimmy Kimmel had. So we assume Jimmy Kimmel had a good one. Um, and we love them. Yeah, we do. And it was a bit of a transition. I would say for the first couple of weeks we had them. I would be really tired at the end of the day. My back would be a little bit tired from standing up all the time. And now it's totally fine. Yeah. And I will say we still sit a lot. It's not like we walk all the time, but it's so nice to get in a few miles at work. It just feels so good. Okay. That's our treadmill desks. So if you'd like to see us on our treadmill desks, we will Instagram a picture of ourselves Walking away. Yes. I'm at Liz Craft and Sarah is at S. Fain on Instagram. 
Okay, so next we have a question from Kristen, um, who is a business manager in L.A., Yes, and she wants to know about mansplaining, <laughs> which, you know, is a topic of conversation that comes up quite often. She says, how do you deal with mansplaining and standing up for yourself without being deemed a bitch or a crazy person? As a highly educated and licensed professional, this is one thing that really gets to me. I would love to hear about other women who face this issue and what they do in that position to still come out on high. Well, (laughs) Um, so this is a thing that literally just happened to me. We were having a conversation with a group of people about epidurals um, and childbirth, usually the domain of women. Yes, usually. And just as I said, well, when I had an epidural, (laughs) a guy spoke up and (laughs) said, well, from from all of my research into epidurals from the shows that I've worked on, what I understand is that they're not that painful or, you know, something. Yeah. And I was just like, wait, didn't I just say, I, literally, I just said, well, when I had an epidural, my ex- literal experience having one was not was uh, not as valid yes. as somebody's yes. research. Second to his yeah. research. Um, and I have to say, like the person who said this is such a nice person, yeah. I would say definitely a, a feminist. Yeah, not, for sure. You know, it, this is an unconscious thing men do, Yeah, which is why we try to have a sense of humor about it. (laughs) We try not to take it seriously. However, you also can't let yourself be overshadowed by mansplaining. So what we find very useful is being a team of women Mm -hmm. together in a room. Um, Of course, sometimes we're alone in groups of people, not with each other, but many times we're together. And we use the... um, it's called amplification. Yeah. Which is something I think we read the women on the Supreme Court do. Yes. When a woman is sort of being talked over or disregarded in some way, another woman kind of speaks up for them. Oh, I was just thinking about what Liz said. Or, well, let's talk for a moment about what Sarah said. So in that circumstance, I don't know if I said this, but I very well might have, even though, you know, it's not a career thing. I still want your opinion to be heard. I might have said, so wait, Sarah, what were you saying about epidurals? Because you had one with Violet, right? (laughs) Exactly. You might have said exactly that. Um, But it's hard because it can be really, really frustrating. And this was, of course, a totally low stakes. Yes. Just just casual conversation. Yes, exactly. It was kind of hilarious. If it's a high stakes thing, you really do have to find a way to stand your ground and that it's a high wire act. It is because doing it's it the without whole, being a bitch. It's the whole thing that she said about seeming like a bitch, yeah. like coming off as shrill, yeah. hysterical, uptight. You know, I could go on and on <laughs> with the ways women come off to men when yeah. they try to stand up against this kind of um, thing. But it must be done. It must be done. I think so it really is the taking it. it in stride. Yeah. Take it in stride. And, you know, you want to say, well, just try to sound casual, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, Take try. it in stride and stand your ground. Yeah. Well, Easier, better said advi- than done. Easier said than done. <laughs> Good advice, nonetheless. Yeah. Okay. So then we got a question from Jessica. She said, why, oh, why do writers, directors, producers not ask real medical professionals to edit, even just skim the scenes involving medical talk or hospital procedures? 
She said, save for ER, most shows, even medical shows, get this stuff so wrong that my husband won't even watch them. It's mind-boggling to me that shows don't have $50 and a slice of pizza to throw at a real live medical professional to act as a literal script doctor. What gives? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've heard this from a few people over the years um, about legal shows and medical shows. People get, you know, up in arms over things not being accurate. We're on a legal show, actually, right now, and we go to a lot of... Um, lengths to try to make the law accurate. However, a couple of things. One, we only have so much time in a story. And like we just you, things have to be shorthanded. Right. It's 42 minutes. A, yes. a TV episode is after the commercials is 42 minutes. One story is not going to get all 42 of those minutes. And one thing you don't want is because, OK, so Jessica, you and your husband may know a lot about medicine, but people who don't know a lot about medicine might actually become more confused if we give too much detailed explanation because it's like, well, what is a lay person going to understand? We're not, you know, most people aren't doctors. So I totally get that it's frustrating. At the same time, we're really focused on story. Yeah. Story really comes first. You want to have those few minutes that you have be really entertaining and emotional. That said, most shows really do have Medical or legal consultants. Absolutely. We know ER did. And like the show we're on now, we have a legal consultant. And it was created by a lawyer. It was created by a lawyer, yeah. When we work with Marsha, she's super, Marsha Clark, she's she's very intense about being uh, accurate accurate with the law while respecting that you want to get a certain emotion or, you know, perhaps the story will be bigger in the show than like in in real life. Yeah. And I mean, when people work on medical and legal shows, they learn a ton. Like, for instance, Sarah Scott Gemmel, our good friend who worked on ER for eight years, Uh he once diagnosed someone at a dinner party. Yeah. We were sitting there with Scott and a bunch of other people. And our friend Aaron was talking about a a medical thing that his partner had gone through. (laughs) And Scott goes, oh, it was aphasia or something. And we, our jaws, everyone's jaws yeah. just dropped. Um, and, and Aaron was like, it took doctors like two weeks to figure that out. And like Gemmel figured it out at the dinner Eight table. Eight seconds, yeah. So, you know, people do do the research. And then, Sarah, we heard from Marcus, who was doing his own research about how we get paid. Juicy is, topic. Yes. <laughs> he says, hey, I was wondering if you could give me some insight about pay or how you're paid. I know it's personal and asking how much you get paid, so I'm going to steer clear of that. But are you paid by a specific network or a production company or the writer's union? Are you paid as writers only for the episodes you write? Is there an actual pay hierarchy in the writer's room? How about your assistant? Do you guys pay that salary or is that worked into the show's budget? I believe I wouldn't be the only one wondering about these questions, and it would be cool to know feeling like an insider and all. So this is a very good question because getting paid obviously is incredibly important when you're starting your career or having your career. Yes. So usually writers are paid by the show that they're on and they have an episodic fee. Which is also a producing fee. We've mentioned before probably that in television writers, once you reach a certain level, you're a writer and a producer. Right. So like the lowest level writers, staff writers – story editors, probably executive story editors, those positions all have a weekly minimum that is established by the Writers Guild of America. 
So the shows pay staff writers, story editors, and executive story editors according to those minimums. And then once you are a co-producer, you have to make at least those minimums, but you are paid per episode and you have an episodic fee. And that's when your agent gets into sort of deal-making. That's when it, their, your fees can be very different depending on who it is and how much the show wants you and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then there are people like us. We have an overall deal at a studio. So the studio, we are paid by the studio, and they sort of decide how they want to best use us. Um, we can be assignable to shows or develop or or both. Yeah, and what's good about it for them is that then we're exclusive to them. We can't work for any other studio, and what's good for us is it gives us stability, um, which is nice when you're in a field that can often be very unpredictable. <laughs> yes. Assistants get paid. It really depends on the situation. Um, they either get paid through the show, which, by the way, when we say through the show, it's still from the studio. It's just the money is from the studio comes to the show. Um, so if you're a writer's assistant in the room or a writer's assistant to a showrunner, you get paid through the show. Like in our case, we pay our assistant through our deal. Right. So they give us money yes. as part of the deal that we then pay her with. Yes. Now, Sarah, one thing that's interesting to note, which I think people don't realize, is no matter what level writer you are, so whether you're the lowest or the highest, script fees are the same for everyone. Right. So to write a network script is whatever it is. I think it's somewhere around around $30,000. $30, and then a cable is a different rate. So where the chain, the hierarchy in pay comes is through your producing fees. Right. Often staff writers will not get paid script fees. That's sort of subtracted from their salary. Yes. Their salary is an advance against script fees. Yeah. And then, of course, as a team, and this yes. is true whatever level you are, as a team, we split a salary. Yes. So we get half of yes. our salary. <laughs> of our salary. <laughs> but that's okay. Yes. We decided long ago that that was a worthwhile trade. So anyway, great question, Marcus. I hope that made a modicum of sense. Okay, Liz, now it's time for a voicemail. Hey, Liz and Sarah. This is Kate Carmichael from Austin, Texas. And had a question for y'all. I feel like generally I have a heart full of happiness, except for one week out of the month when I want to kill everyone, including myself. And um, I feel like my little body is just very sensitive to hormones. And I was wondering if you guys have any tips for those times in life where you feel like you have a thousand pound weight on your chest. And for whatever reason, um, the work that you usually enjoy is feeling even more challenging than usual. Do you have some tips for how to power through those times? Um, well, so this is a PMS question, sir, it sounds like to me. <laughs> this is my answer. Midol, meditation, and a good night's sleep. Oh, I have just, I don't think I suffer from PMS, so I don't feel like I have any advice. I feel like I have not generally suffered from PMS, but lately 
Like in the, over the last couple of years, I definitely get crabby. Oh, you do? Yeah. I haven't noticed if that makes you feel it's any better. It's because of my all meditation. Uh, okay. <laughs> Good night's sleep. Well, so you're. <laughs> I'm working on the meditation yes. part. Yeah. <laughs> yes. As you've told me, you've meditated 17 times. <laughs> There's times even without PMS that people feel crabby oh, and God, feel yes. like they don't enjoy the work they usually enjoy. I mean, is it sort of taking a moment for gratitude? Like yeah. listing things that you are grateful for. I think that can help. Yeah. And like we have our work mantra. It's a fun job and we enjoy it. I do think during difficult times, we remind ourselves of that. Like having a mantra in place mm-hmm. that you know kind of supports you can be a good thing to turn to yes. when you're struggling. Don't indulge yourself with unhealthy things just Uh. because you've like, I have PMS, so I'm going to eat a whole chocolate cake. I mean, look, if you want to eat a chocolate cake, go for it. I don't (laughs) care. But if you don't want to, don't just do it because you have PMS. Yes. Keep your good habits. Don't not exercise because you have cramps. Right. Don't make a bad situation worse. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Which it's easy to do when you indulge yourself in the name of PMS. Yes. So that was very Gretchen Rubin advice. Well, I was channeling my (laughs) sister, yes, the happiness and habits guru to give that advice. I know that's what she would say. (laughs) Anyway, thanks, Kate. And thank you for listening. And we hope this helps your monthly situation. Liz, there is nothing I love more than having a delicious meal that I didn't have to cook, which is why I have been getting no prep, no mess meals from Factor. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Last night, I had had blackened salmon with broccoli and with cauliflower rice. It was so delicious. It was the perfect dinner. Head to factormeals.com slash HIH50 and use code HIH50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code HIH50 at factormeals.com slash HIH50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. I don't know about you, but we're always looking for ways to get our kids involved and give back in our local community. That's why we're excited to tell you about Student Visionaries of the Year, a campaign by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, which is the largest nonprofit organization dedicated to creating a world without blood cancers. Student Visionaries of the Year is a seven-week philanthropic leadership development program for high school students. Participants form strong teams and fundraise in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor in their local community. I would love for Violet to do this program when she's in high school. This program is transformative. It not only helps students develop valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship, not to mention it looks great on college applications, but most importantly, it's also a chance for them to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on blood cancer patients and their families. You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. All right, Sarah. Well, safe to say we got a lot of questions from people 
who are thinking about moving to L.A. and people thinking about moving into a creative field, even if they're not going to move to L.A. Right. And how to handle that. For instance, we heard from Lauren who said, do you have any advice for me, someone not trying to make it in Hollywood, but wanting to be successful as an L.A. transplant and use the city's creative energy to move my own career forward in a better direction? We also heard from Sam, who wants to move to L.A. from Australia. That's a big move. Yes, it is. Um, And we heard from Diana, who's a TV producer in New York who works primarily in unscripted comedy. She wants to transition into scripted. And it can be a big jump. Um, And then we also heard from Jake, who's a high school art teacher and theater director living in Michigan, and he really wants to be a TV writer. Um, He says he was obsessed with Buffy and Angel, which is nice, Um, but he abandoned his dreams because he thinks that it's too impractical, impossible, Um, and he would love to move to Hollywood, but leaving security for uncertainty is daunting. It's so true. Yes. There's really two questions here. Right. It's... Changing fields, and that applies whether you're in L.A., New York, or anywhere in between, or anywhere around the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then moving to L.A. is a sort of a separate issue. Yeah. So what do we want to tackle first? Um, well, let's talk moving to L.A. Okay. We've talked that's about simple. it a little, but yeah, that's concrete. <laughs> and the first thing is, which we have said before, is to give it time. Yes. Like, do your research, first of all. We've said before, it takes three to five years. Recently, we've heard it takes 10 years. Yeah. So you have to know that you're really investing a good chunk of your life in this. Yeah. And it might not work out. And the thing to know about L.A. as a city, whether you're a lawyer or a writer or whatever you're going to do, is that it's really a a bunch of small towns Mm -hmm. put together. So where you live really impacts your experience. So if you're in Topanga Canyon, that's one lifestyle. If you're in Silver Lake, that's another lifestyle. If you live in the Valley, (laughs) like I do and you do, that's another lifestyle. So you really want to do your research about the kinds of neighborhoods you're going to. Like if you're a 25-year-old hipster, you might want to move to Echo Park. My favorite neighborhood. Yes. And if you're a 40-year-old dad, you might want to think about Sherman Oaks. Or if you're just moving here, I would actually say Los Feliz. Yeah, Los Feliz is a fantastic neighborhood. A little more hopping. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And think about what you want to do. So, again, if if you're a young person who, for instance, wants to be a writer, think about being around other young people and putting yourself in that environment. So I do think where you choose to live in L.A. is a huge sort of factor in your how easy the transition is going to be. I mean, so that's L.A., which, of course, is all very bound up in, you know, wanting a more creative life for a lot of people. But specifically about how to transition into a creative field from a non-creative field, I mean, that can be hard. Yeah. And then network. Yes. Um, You know, when we talked to our agent, Matt Solo, in episode 12, he brilliantly said, your job is what you do from nine to seven and your career is what you do from seven to midnight. And a big part of that is networking, just getting to know people who can open up doors for you, who can provide opportunities. 
when we first started working, our first agent said, you just need to get to know showrunners. And we thought, how <laughs> in the world are we going to get to know a showrunner? Like, that is crazy. We will never know a showrunner. There's not like a corner where all the yeah. showrunners stand and you just like go there and hang out. Now, of course, we know nothing but showrunners. Yes. <laughs> and a big part of that was Liz, like hustling her butt down the beach on a bike to meet someone who we knew who worked in television. It's true. I got a call. Hey, there's a TV writer at this beach party. And I <laughs> got, that was when I was living in Marina Del Rey, a beach party in Santa Monica. And I got out of bed. I got dressed and I rode my bike down to that beach party and met someone who ended up being one of our best friends, Bob Fisher. Who you introduced to his wife. Yes. So it all worked out for every, both of us. Yeah. But he was the first TV writer we really knew. Um, and he was incredibly supportive, and he introduced us to a million TV writers. Yeah. So network. Network. Um, and then this is going to sound a little bit harsh probably, but this is the advice we give to a lot of people, which is don't move. Right. Don't come here. It's, <laughs> it's really hard. hard. <laughs> and if you can ignore that advice, it probably means that you are meant to do this. Right. Exactly. And then we also say that you really have to approach – getting into this field as if you're going to law school. Like, wanting to do something creative doesn't mean just, like, sitting at a cafe and with your laptop and drinking coffee and chatting. You know, it's really... It's a grind. Have, it's, it is. It is really a grind. Like, early on in our career, we would watch shows and break them down, like, break down the structure of them to figure out exactly how they were being done. Like, we studied them the way you would study a law book. Yes, and then specifically, I would say if you want to be a TV writer or do something creative in L.A., it can be really useful to get an agency job, which, again, we discussed with our agent, Matt Solo, in episode 12. You make a ton of contacts, and it kind of teaches you an overview of the business. Yes, but save some money before you move here and get that job because it does not pay well. None of the assistant jobs pay well. Oh, and we forgot one thing about moving to L.A. This is a piece of advice you always give, Liz. Yes. If you're coming from New York or any other city where you get to walk a lot, expect to gain weight. Because once you're in L.A., no matter what, you end up being in your car all the time, not walking, and it's very easy to gain weight. I didn't realize how many calories I burned in Manhattan on a daily basis. <laughs> okay. So that is our advice for making a career in Hollywood for whatever that's worth. Um, Liz, so let's go back to our mailbag. Yes. Sarah, this question comes from Virginia. She said, I started watching The Shield, which is a show you and I worked on, from season one before finding out that you are writers on season four. I am now up to season four and tonight watched the episode Tar Baby. I'm wondering how a couple of gals from Kansas City were able to nail the dialogue of inner city homies and others so well. Did you write for specific characters or all characters? How did you research dialect and police lingo? Well, first of all, thanks, Virginia. <laughs> um, I mean, the main answer is that as TV writers, you have to be able to write for everyone. You have to be able to put yourself into all kinds of different shoes. So you do whatever you have to do to make that happen. It does involve a lot of research. And as to the question of do we write for specific characters or all the characters, we write for all the characters. And that's true as far as I know for all TV writers yeah. because you're writing whole scripts. So it's not like one person is writing Vic Mackey 
who was the star of The Shield, and another person was writing Dutch. We're all writing all of the characters who hopefully have an established voice. Yeah, and it doesn't matter if they're number one on the call sheet, like Vic on The Shield, or, you know, extra number three. Who probably doesn't even have lines. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we write all the characters, and and, um, that's the fun of the job. Yeah. Um, Okay, so then we have a question. I love this question. From Rachel, who says, I wanted to ask you about professional jealousy. Mm-hmm. How do you guys cope with, or do you ever even experience comparing yourselves with and being a touch green eyed about the achievements of other and maybe particularly female writers? Mm, this is juicy. I mean, short answer <laughs> we do get jealous. Yes, <laughs> we're human. <laughs> Sarah, this made me remember, I I know I came in the next morning and told you about this experience (laughs) I had. Girls had come out, um, and I had not yet watched it, Uh Um, but I kept hearing about girls, girls, Uh girls, so I said, okay, let me watch this. So I sat down, and I watched the first two episodes of Girls, and I started crying afterward. I've never done this before. Because I was like, this is exactly what I wish I had written. I will never write anything this good. And that's it. I can't even aspire to it. Pack it up and move back Pack to Kansas it up. City. Exactly. <laughs> that's how I felt. I was just, I loved it so much. And I was so sad that I had not written it. And, you know, I got over it, right. of course. But I just did have a moment of real jealousy. Yeah. Well, Lena, it's Lena Dunham. It's good to have that high bar out there. Yeah. I can think of it that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we definitely, and I think it's accurate to say we get more jealous of women than of men. There's an equivalence mm-hmm. there that just, you know, it definitely sparks more like, oh, why didn't we do that? You know? Yes. And there have been times when we've been offered or, or not even offered a project, but offered to meet on a project. And for whatever reason, we couldn't meet on it. Or, you know, we couldn't do it or we didn't want to do it. And then it ended up going to series. And it's been like, oh, if we had taken that meeting, if we had done that project, would we now have a show on the air? Yeah. But what we have to remember is a million things go into getting a show on the air. It's really lightning in a bottle. Yeah. And we may have cast somebody else who didn't work in the lead. Or we may have used a different director who wasn't as good, or our timing might have been different. Or our script might have sucked. Our script could have sucked. (laughs) Uh, Doubtful. Probably not. It could always happen. (laughs) So everyone is on their own path. Right. And we really do feel that way. We're happy with our path. We like our path, and we don't want to be on anybody else's path. That's so true. And I also think that for us, jealousy passes very quickly because we know how hard it is. Yes. Like our friend Monica... Awusu Breen yes. has the show Midnight Texas. And I'm like, Watch I'm it. a little jealous that Monica has this show on the air. But I also know, like, she's traveling back and forth. Like, I think it shoots in maybe New Mexico. Like, running a show is really hard. Yes. And it really takes up your whole life. So when I think about that, I think, like, you know, I'm just really happy for Monica. And yes. I want her to take care of herself. Yes. And my jealousy becomes, like, compassion. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then people can feel the same for us when we're in that position. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is a good question. I think a little bit of jealousy, by the way, is a good thing. I yeah. mean, it keeps you motivated. For sure. Like, if we didn't care at all when these sort of things happen, then I would say 
we're in the wrong field yeah. because you want to give a shit. Exactly. Um, and that actually transitions us very nicely into our next question, um, which is from Yifat Schwartz. And she asked about my favorite Zen parable. In episode five, I talked about my second favorite Zen parable, um, and Yifat wanted to know about my first, which is the story of the Chinese farmer. Okay, so there's this farmer, and his horse runs off into the hills, and his neighbors all say, oh, what bad news. And the farmer says, well, you never know what's good news and what's bad news. And the next day, the horse comes back, and he's brought a bunch of wild horses with him, and the neighbors say, oh, what good news. And the farmer says, well, you never know what's good news and what's bad news. And then the next day, his son is riding one of the wild horses that came back with his other horse, and the horse throws him off, and the son breaks his leg. And the neighbors say, oh, what bad news. And the farmer says, well, you never know what's good news and what's bad news. And the next day, the army comes, and they're conscripting people for a war that's happening. And the neighbors all say, what good news, because your son can't now be conscripted by the army. And the farmer says, well, you never know what's good news and what's bad news. And for us, that story... encapsulates life in Los Angeles. It really does. And that's also my mom's favorite Zen parable, Uh Sarah. So it's for both of us, it's very resonant in our lives. Yeah. I think it really helps us maintain an even keel, both in good times and in bad times, um, because you just, you never know. You never know if this thing that's happening is the best thing in the world or if it's the worst thing in the world. Yeah. So just enjoy where you are and keep moving through it. Yeah, you never know what's good news and what's bad news. Okay, Sarah, that wraps up our listener questions. Thank you, everyone. These are wonderful questions. Keep them coming. We'll keep answering your questions, of course. Um, But before we go, we want to do a Hollywood hack. And this week's Hollywood hack, in keeping with our listener question episode, this comes from a listener, Julianne. Yeah, so Julianne heard us talk about The Real Real in a previous episode, and she wanted to offer up a slightly less um, expensive version of The Real Real called Thread Up. It's online consignment, just like The Real Real, but much more affordable. Now, I do want to say that there are things on The Real Real that do not cost $100,000. <laughs> Absolutely. But like Thread Up has a section where it's like everything's under $10. Yes. Like it's really affordable. Yeah. Julianne is a grad student, and she said she uses it all the time. And she also, this is a really cool thing. She said, I also ordered a clean-out bag in the mail from them. I've started to fill it with clothes I don't wear anymore. You can consign your clothes with them online after you send your clothes in, or you can do what I did, which is select a charity for proceeds to go to. With the charity donation option, you get a receipt for your taxes. Gretchen would probably like this clean-out bag thing. It's convenient, which, as she would predict, made me more likely to do it. <laughs> I love that. Love that shout-out to Gretchen and her uh, decluttering <laughs> exactly. obsession. So another great go-to online consignment website is ThreadUp, which everyone should know is T-H-R-E-D-U-P. And hey, everybody, I would love to see Instagram photos of what people have been getting from these sites. Yes. So Instagram your photos from ThreadUp or The Real Real or wherever you like to get your discount goodies. And I will Instagram a picture of my Ooh. Stella McCartney tote that I got. Yes. 
um, and hashtag that happier in Hollywood. And that's it for this episode of Happier in Hollywood. Thanks for listening and thank you all for your questions. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast, give us a review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us. And if you have any more pressing questions about life in Hollywood, leave us a voicemail at 949-HAPPY21 or email us at happierinhollywood at gmail.com. Thank you to our producer, Jennifer Lai. Also, thanks to Kristen Meinzer and Andy Bowers of Panoply. Thank you to my sister, Gretchen Rubin. Happier in Hollywood is part of the Onward Project. And get in touch. I'm on Twitter at Sarah M. Fain and Liz is at Elizabeth Craft. Until next week, I'm Sarah Fain. And I'm Liz Craft. Thanks for joining us. It's a fun job. And we enjoy it. We had so many questions we couldn't even get to. I know. We'll have to do another episode.